it, it occurred to me that this aspiration for political emancipation is not a piece of art, for sure. It's not choreography because this is real life. But it gestures towards choreographic or giving us a score, a musical score or a theatrical score or a choreographic score of what the future can look like for us. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Art Persist podcast, a series by Bosler Arts offering a glimpse into the life of artists and activists from all over the world, here to share their stories with you, the listener. My name's Georgia, and in this episode, we speak to Donna Miranda. Donna is a choreographer living and working in the Philippines. She relocates choreography from the site of the individual body to that of collective political actions. She also does volunteer work for SACA, an alliance of artists supporting genuine agrarian reform in the Philippines. In this episode, Donna and I talk a lot about her life growing up as a dancer and choreographer in the Philippines before turning to activism in 2016 and how now her practice really informs that activism, campaigning for equal rights, especially for farmers in the Philippines today. At the end of the episode, we also talk about her unjust arrest in June 2022. And the sound is a bit difficult in this episode, but please stick with us because it's such an important story to be heard. Hope you enjoy. I guess if there were a piece of work that really impacted me to um, think differently or to take kind of an important turn in my art making. It would be Robert Barry's Inert Gas series. Mm. I don't know if you, if you know this, but this is where he just has this title cards and mm. he, he talks about um, gas he releases into the air mm. and that's the, that's the work. What really struck me about it is that how things that are not normally art are considered as art. Yeah. But if you frame it a certain way, can be perceived differently. Mm. But that it's not so intrusive. It's like, uh, who is this artist who said, uh, and Douglas Hubler who said, mm. the, the, the world is full of, of, of objects and I do not want to add more, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, it I, I think that that kind of economy of composition um, mm. drew, drew me to that kind of um, conceptual practice, but to also to have having a wider idea of possibilities of creation, yeah. where an artist doesn't necessarily have to create, uh, literally create something new, but to to propose something new mm. where a proposal can be considered um as a as an as a work or as a work of art or as a work work of authorship so yes. uh, uh, yeah but ever since i i saw that work um kind of decided to um set myself up to such a standard considering that i come from the performing arts where so many things has to be there's so much preparation in order yeah. to finish a work like there's so much rehearsal 
There needs to be a stage, mm. there needs to be a costume, there needs to be music, there needs to be a light designer, there needs yeah. to be a technical director. It's just that so many things. And yeah. um I felt that that was a little bit um stressful, uh, mm. like just emotionally and mentally. But also practically speaking, those kinds of requirements made it even more hard to create work. Yes. Like, materially speaking, just mm-hmm. practically speaking. Why did, why was it that there were so many things needed to make work when what was really important was a proposition? Mm. Is our proposition to the world? So, after that, I decided to do or pursue what I like to call suitcase pieces or mm-hmm. suitcase things um, that, that there's no need to bring too many props or involve too many people mm. um, and if it were possible to create a, a performance or a work that didn't need the rehearsal that would be perfect as well yeah, yeah. <laughs> no absolutely yeah. well thank you so much Donna and welcome to the Alpsis podcast it's so fantastic to have you on um, we're going to talk more about your your practice in a bit but I thought maybe you could start by just telling us a little bit about your early life where you grew up and what life was like for you okay uh, mm-hmm. I grew up in this in the suburbs it's around two hours away from um, the capital of the Philippines which mm-hmm. is Manila mm-hmm. um, it's a typical suburb middle as aspirational middle class neighborhood mm-hmm. with mother I was raised by a single ma mother mm-hmm. um, who was a government employee uh, I went to like all Filipinos I went to a Catholic school yes. <laughs> during elementary uh, I wanted and every and like all other aspirational suburban middle class kids uh, we had to do summer classes to occupy mm. our time. So I wanted to do piano classes, but um, our household couldn't afford to buy me a piano. And okay. So my mom thought, why don't you just take up dance or ballet? Mm. Um, you don't need to buy a piano. You can just work with your mm. body. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and so I was on the fence with it, but um, there was nothing to do. So mm. I was doing that uh, during summer and then every summer, I think for two summers. And then eventually I had to go to high school or mm-hmm. like here we call it high school, it's secondary education. And then my mom found about this public high school, um, mm-hmm. a specialty public high school for the arts. Mm. It's like a fame school. I don't know if you know the movie Fame. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so we call it the Fame School. Okay. Um, and that school was um, quite isolated. It was in the mountains. Mm. So we lived there for four years. So it's a boarding school wow. also. Yes. And there's a like, very small student population of 100, I think there were 170 of us. From oh my God. Tiny. First year to... It's very tiny. <laughs> First year, fourth year. Mm. So I was a dance major. I did mm-hmm. ballet. So it was that kind of routine where you, um, in the morning, you wake up at 7, you do your academics until 12, and then from 2 o'clock to 6, you do your ballet classes, mm. and then from eight, uh, from 7 till 11 in the evening, 
you do your dance rehearsals. Wow. So, <laughs> that kind of it seemed fun, but at some point, as a child, um, it was a little bit stressful. Yeah. Um, because the, the students there were being groomed, I guess, professional yeah. artists. Some yeah. would, yeah, some would go on to be to dance in professional dance companies. Um, others will play in orchestras or symphony orchestras, mm. or will be, um. Mm musician, solo musician, solo concert pianist, or uh, vocalist. So all the uh, seven arts or five arts were represented. So I kind of grew up in this environment of mm. being around art students. Um, pretty much yeah. in the most formative parts of my life. Yeah. Um, for four years so wow. I did that for high school and so you so once you left school you went on to become a you a dancer formal dancer right yes uh yeah after I left high school I pursued so I have to do university mm-hmm. um because this is a thing yeah I just mm-hmm. have to do it <laughs> uh, I did not take up dance in university though oh, because okay. I after doing it for four years I kind of became sick of being around artists yeah <laughs> like, I, I can't <laughs> I just can't be with you um so i i took up anthropology i mm. studied social science but while doing university i was already um involved in the professional dance scene so mm-hmm. i do my university classes in the mornings and then in the afternoon and the evening i would um report uh to the uh, i was company scholar a company dancer in the one of only two professional dance mm-hmm. companies back then wow. in Manila um, at the cultural center. Mm-hmm. So I did that for around three years until I started working with an independent um, choreographer mm-hmm. uh, who introduced contemporary dance in the Philippines. And I decided to leave the um, mainstream dance like formal dance mm-hmm. company and worked with her in her um studio that kind of set me off to work in contemporary dance and eventually decide to make pieces for myself as well yeah and you know um you're now a choreographer and an activist when when was that were you always an activist as a child or like a young person or when was when was the change for you yeah um Funnily, I, I'm I'm quite a young activist. Um, I I've only been an activist for the last um, six years, I mm-hmm. think, um, which is quite strange because I grew up around activists. Um, most of my good friends in Neuni, mm-hmm. my housemates. I I lived in a boarding house where everyone was an activist mm. except for me. We <laughs> um, <laughs> were like. Oh, so eventually they get they they stopped um mm. asking me to join them in their political rallies because at that time I was very busy with my dance career. Um, yes. I felt to me back then um it felt like if I had anything to contribute to history or to the world or to the society, it would be just be a good artist. Mm. <laughs> to me back then, um, the most revolutionary thing I could do was to be an artist. Yes. Um, as, and, and it went on for for a very quite a long 
more than half of my career. Mm. Um, but essentially, when I started to become more activist of choreographer and make pieces for myself mm-hmm. and um, come face to face with the um, limits um, of producing work, mm. become more a little bit more mature um, mm-hmm. creatively. I pursued a, an experimental practice in dance, and mm. eventually we say I say this along with my partner because um, we do a lot of collaborations together. Mm-hmm. The shift towards activism or shift towards more activist work, we consider it a kind of a logical step from having an experimental practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, at some point, if if you were looking at works where the proposition is the artwork then you'd really run out of things to make yes <laughs> <laughs> it's like what am i gonna make mm-hmm. i don't know anymore and then your world kind of becomes a little bit bigger or mm. your canvas or the space the stage where you're moving in becomes a little bit bigger mm-hmm. um, and then eventually you look at the world in which you belong. You look at the social practice. Uh, there was. I was also inspired by this exercise. I think Team Edschels did this. He's a director and a and a choreographer. Mm-hmm. Uh, does work in dance, um, where he were he was um, doing an kind of an encyclopedia or an index of mm. things that are not necessarily scores but can be keter scores mm. and and that and that kind of that trajectory at that time um those were the conditions where i started to become more interested in the so in social movements and in yeah. political movements uh yeah but i think the real defining moment or what we like to call the radicalizing movement mm. was um, in 2016 um, Duterte came into power mm-hmm. um, he launched his um, war against drugs and mm. my brother became a victim of war against drugs, his campaign against drugs okay. where they were extrajudicial killings of suspected drug addicts everywhere um, oh God in the country um, and so it happened my, my brother a day after his birthday was um, killed in front of his house um, oh because he was suspected to be a drug addict uh, he was in three drug lists in our okay. village and in our municipality mm. and that, that that kind of became uh, a point where i decided all right, I've been involved in some campaigns before mm. as, as someone who felt that I had a conscience or mm. things were not right. But when that happened, it became clearer that I just don't want to be involved like supporting, but to really channel the grief I have yes. into something and in, in something that can change things. Mm. I'm so and sorry even if that's... Yeah, it, uh, even if the change will take long, at least I want to be part of a solution. Yeah. His death can't be. It was that. Eh? It was a very personal. His death can't be put to waste. Yes. So that 
that pushed us to like really decide okay i i will i will decide to become part of an organization to mm-hmm. be uh, an organizer to contribute to what i can contribute yeah. uh, be it organizing cookouts mm-hmm. uh, or just organizing a mailing list mm. <laughs> it, it just um yeah and that started it all hi this is Hussam Fazula, co-founder of Bosla Arts. Did you know our latest issue, Beyond Resilience, is now out? Featuring seven artists from around the world going beyond the state of resilience through art, activism, and action. As a listener of the Art Persist podcast, you can get 15% using the code TAPP, all in caps. Order now at boslaarts.com. Now, back to the podcast. And I, I read about you and I quote that you relocate choreography from the site of the individual body to that of collective political actions. I was wondering like, if you could talk a bit about how, you, how your work as an artist and an activist combine. I like to think of choreography as a practice of organizing movement in time and space yes. um, rather than creating original movement mm. um, it's a it's really a work of organization there was a time where this idea of original movement vocabulary um, really stressed me out <laughs> how much more original can a person get these days or yeah. how can how much more original can I be and yet the task of the artist is to originate or to um negate that which came before us um so i i I studied and 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 like went back to basics okay when you're a choreographer what do you really do and so we organize movement in time and space Mm. i was at the time in my career where i didn't have dancers to work with i usually work with my own body Mm. but i was becoming frustrated with that because i wanted to see the work outside my body yes um i wanted to see movement happen um and not experience movement happen to myself (laughs) as a solo dancer Mm -hmm. um, you can never really watch yourself Mm. and i don't like watching myself in videos i i was working with a few dancers back then but because i was i'm an independent dancer and i don't have a company and I can only produce work when I get commissions. I can't maintain a repertoire mm-hmm. company. I cannot maintain dancers. So I was centered with this problem of how can I choreograph? How, how can I make a piece of dance without dancers? Mm. Or And then, so I started to make this book of dance scores. Then mm. I started to think, how can I make a piece of work without I think before that, I did lectures without dancers on stage. Mm. And then I became interested in how could I make a piece of dance without the stage, mm. without rehearsal, without even a body to work with. Yeah. Um, that's when I started to be interested in writing or producing texts, um, okay. dance or doing erasures mm. and looking at erasures as a sort of um, kind of a choreography. Yeah. 
And so when I that was also the same time that I was becoming an activist, mm. and I have been introduced to the national Dem- the program for national Demo- democracy, mm-hmm. which really lays out a clear program of um, addressing um, agrarian um, addressing land injustice, distributing land to the farmers, um, establishing national industrialization, mm. um, and um, pushing for the alliance of the democratic majority, which is um, composed of the farmers and workers. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, when national democracy is achieved, then if socialist transformation is possible, then socialist transformation is possible. Mm. But even the program for national democracy was very clear it had clear um, step-by-step solutions. Like yeah. first, organize farmers. Second, work towards campaigning for decreasing land rent, mm. increasing farm produce. And and they were all in this very neatly written documents over the last 50 years. Okay. And that those documents continue to guide activists in the conduct of work they do every day. Even political mobilizations have a certain like conduct and yes. like when you do uh, political rallies you have to be uh, in the line of five people <sighs> and then you have to walk all together and mm. occupy one lane of the street and then when there are police forces you have to clasp each other like this <laughs> or, and then make sure that the police line doesn't break your line yes. and it felt like this is this is there's so much choreography mm. happening here there's so much organizing movement yeah and it it occurred to me that this aspiration for political emancipation is not a piece of art for sure it's mm-hmm. not choreography because this is real life mm. but it gestures towards choreographic or giving us a score a musical score or a theatrical mm. score or a choreographic score yeah. of what the future can look like for mm. us. That is so interesting. And actually, it reminds me, the last episode I did was with the Fearless Collective and um, the founder, Shiloh, was saying that she imagined like Gandhi's march to the salt, the salt march that Gandhi did as also reinterpreted as like a performance piece as well because it's all about yeah you know obviously it's not art it's a political movement but it's integrating the same kind of tactics almost as artistic practices so it's really really interesting and Donna I was wondering if um for for those who don't know you could maybe just briefly summarize the situation for farmers and the situation of land rights in the Philippines at this moment so we call Philippine society a semi-feudal and semi-colonial society. It's semi-feudal because farmers do not own the land they till. Um, mm. Seven out of ten farmers do not own the land they till. And this has mm. been happening, and this is the semi-colonial part, because this kind of condition has happened since the time um, that Spain colonized the Philippines in the 1500s until we were passed on to um American occup- American colonial period and, el- and mm. up to the present time. So up to the present time, the organization of land has inherited the feudal um, exploitation that the Spaniards put in the Philippines in order to extract value from our land. 
but also mm-hmm. to extract value from the labor of farmers. Because land itself will, will does not yield riches and it has to be developed by farmers. So um, the farmers continue, the Philippine peasant movement continues to struggle to own their land. In the 80s, there was an effort um, by the government, um, by the Aquino administration, to redistribute land to the farmers. It was called Comprehensive Agrarian Reform Program. But this mm-hmm. program has a lot of holes. Um, the first, the first um, loophole, well, the first um, hole in it mm-hmm. is um, that the, the lands are not distributed freely to the farmers. Mm-hmm. The government will buy the land from the landlords and then ask the farmers to pay the land they purchase from the landlord so that the farmers can own the land. It's very strange, you no? Know? Like yeah. what when, when I realized this and I read this, I was like, <laughs> like I were I was out of words. It doesn't make any words yeah. sense. So anyway, so so those kinds of um policies while are supposed to help farmers own the productive resources, prevent them from owning the productive resources. Because the, mm. the very reason why they do not have land they own is because they cannot afford they cannot afford it. Um, mm. They depend on the land. And all the input used to make the land productive actually come from the farmers and not from the landlords. And yet mm. the landlords um, extort or collect rent from these farmers solely because they own the piece of land. Yeah. Um, so that is the situation of, of the Philippine peasant movement in the Philippines. Apart, uh, apart from facing um, neoliberal uh, policies right now, such as the unfettered um, importation of agricultural food products in the Philippines to solve what we are supposed to be experiencing as a food crisis. Yeah. The government says it's cheaper to buy um, rice from Thailand rather than support um, local rice production so that what we will do is support importation. And what that yeah. does is, of course, naturally kill the local rice production. Mm. It continues to be this way up until now. Um, there are some efforts of, uh, and then the national economic policy is what we call an import-dependent and export-oriented um, economic policy, meaning all natural resources are exported to the global north or to the developed mm-hmm. countries to produce um, complete materials, which are again imported back to the Philippines for us to consume and buy. Wow. Yes. <laughs> 94% of minerals extracted in the Philippines is exported. Wow. 94%. 94%. And that's, we have seven precious metals to establish mm. a steady, strong national industry, national industries. We have the second largest um gold deposit in the world we are the sixth largest coastline in the world and the center of biodiversity and yet our people are poor yeah yeah so um the struggle now at least in its most concerns is the philippine peasant movement 
has been advocating in the last three decades what they call the Genuine Agrarian Reform Bill, which um, reforms the current Comprehensive Agrarian Reform Program that um, struggles or aspires for and fights for the free distribution of land for farmers. Mm. Okay. And it's it's so kind of, I mean, not surprising, but shocking to hear you talk about kind of land rights and the exploitation of of workers as well. And I guess it's, you know, we, we say we're in a post-colonial world, but actually it's just shifted to look <laughs> different, but still it's the taking of a country's resources for a different country in the West. And I wanted to think a bit about food as well, because mm -hmm. obviously it's all connected. And during the pandemic, you created a cooking show, if I'm right, that looks at the role of food during the pandemic, but also how, you know, how food is exploited and short in the Philippines, but also how it can be an act of solidarity as well. Could you tell us a little bit about that? During the pandemic, because we are food security advocates, um, we, mm -hmm. at that time, we were also maintaining a collective vegetable garden nearby. Mm -hmm. um, but because of the pandemic, there was so much restrictions um, that a lot, because of the lockdown, um, a lot of the communities didn't have access to food because mm -hmm. we really have a very bad system of food production. <laughs> City, uh, urban areas and rural areas are not, are not connected um, efficiently. They are connected mm -hmm. through a very long transportation route. For instance, um, the supplies for vegetables and rice in Manila depends on at least depends on the transportation of goods from the north, which takes at least six hours to get okay. to Manila. So okay. that's very inefficient. Um, and mm -hmm. that's when that's under good traffic conditions. Um, mm -hmm. And so when you have lockdowns that really put lockdowns uh, barriers across towns and municipalities you will have areas where there are no food you will mm. have areas where farmers um, also during the lockdown farmers have been restricted to go to their field mm. and harvest the food that uh, the vegetables that they have planted um yes. and so what we did then was devise a system where we can get the vegetables from the farming communities that we work with and then distribute those vegetables to rural at the urban community that don't have mm -hmm. access to vegetables. Um, okay. Also because urban, urban poor communities do not have access to medicines because yes. they're poor. Um, but if we can channel the vegetables from the farming communities to the urban poor communities, then at least they're eating nutritious food and they yes. will be protected from the fires. Mm. And so we kind of run that um, during the pandemic for like six months. We were doing constant relief work. We would um, collect donations from individuals and then every other day pack what we call nutrili nutri relief packs like nutrition yeah. relief packs um, okay. of vegetables of uh, basic necessities and um mm. 
um, hygiene kits um, mm-hmm. to be distributed to urban poor communities. And then we'd also collect hygiene kits and vegetables that we would distribute to rural communities who didn't have wow. access to Of course, we were all doing this under very strict lockdowns and eventually yeah. like doing it on the sly because we could get be arrested and, for quarantine mm-hmm. violations. So we were doing all sorts of um, beating around <laughs> the bush. <Yeah. laughs> eventually, after one year, um, we decided when the restrictions were eased a little bit, we decided mm-hmm. to do a community kitchen where we would... Um, okay do uh, cook meals like uh, i think there were snacks or evening dinner dinner mm-hmm. for um urban core communities who didn't have access to food but also didn't have time to cook because their children were doing online school and oh, distribute yes. the food packs to them this mm-hmm. this kind of distributing food became not just a work of charity, but we considered it as a work of organizing, first mm-hmm. organizing the supporters and really putting a political direction to the kind of um, what used to be charity work for them and make it yeah. an opportunity to enlighten people of the issues and to give a space to talk about social and economic issues everybody was facing at that time. Mm. But also help the... Um, communities that we were helping organize themselves um, in yeah. order to so that they can identify what their needs were and start helping yeah. themselves. Um, yeah. So at that point, we realized that food kind of became what really was a battlefield. Um, it was it was something that people were struggling to have, but yeah. also a place, a, 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 a platform for building solidarity. And and resist resisting against yeah. the the militarist lockdown, the very strict restrictions, and restricting mm. what I what I hated the most during the lockdowns was this. Please practice social distancing. I think mm. this was wrong. People <laughs> in a time of crisis such as a global pandemic, where there is um weak social welfare system, weak delivery yeah. of basic health care services, and even access to things such as alcohol and face masks were, mm. were really a problem. What we really need to do was not socially distance ourselves, but to strengthen social cohesion and, and, and social yeah. relationships. And so I, this was really a pet peeve for me, the social distancing, and I had to like really tell my comrades, Please do not use the word social distancing. Say physical distancing, not mm. social. So, so it was a reverse. And and this group Saka that I work with, um, we actually saw a two hundred percent increase in our membership during the pandemic wow. because mm. people needed a a platform, a venue. To feel that they belong to a community and that they are not yes. alone, whether it is helping themselves themselves or helping others, mm. they felt it. You really, we really saw this spirit of helping others as a yeah. way to not feel alone, um, yeah. and that revolved around food. So mm. I decided to do this work called a cooking show to cook 
the food that I thought was most comforting to many Filipinos, mm. which was this rice porridge. And mm. use that as an opportunity to talk about the what was also the food crisis that was also happening at the same time yeah. that the pandemic mm. was happening. It really incredible work. And yeah, it's just crazy also that thing of like when the state is failing, you know, you you have to step in and do the most basic thing, which is to provide people with food. It's yeah. it's really amazing. Um yeah. but such difficult situation such a difficult position for mm-hmm. people to be in i'm having goosebumps um, <laughs> talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well oh my god <laughs> yeah it, it was really yeah. crazy because we never mm. i think for a whole year we didn't sleep because yeah uh, because on top of the pandemic we also had three typhoons mm. happen at the same time during the pandemic so we had our normal community kitchens but then we also had to mobilize donations and resources for the oh my God. rural communities who were very deeply affected by three very heavy typhoons and so it was mm. really a super crazy time that we learned yeah. how to cook for 300 people in two hours <laughs> like it's wow. two days. amazing yeah <laughs> yeah incredible um, Donna, I've taken a lot of your time, so I just want to ask you one last question, but it's a it's quite a big question. You're part of the Tenang group. Can you tell us a bit about what you advocate for and, and also what happened uh, on the 9th of June um, during the land cultivation activity? Okay, so um, Saka, the, our group of artists, um, we are advocates of land justice, food security, and just peace. Um, and so as part of our creative work or as part of our work as peasant advocates, we join collective land cultivation mm-hmm. activities. First to observe them, how they really look like, but also it's to participate in them because it's just weird to observe mm. <laughs> when you see farmers yeah. cultivating yeah. land and as 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 practitioners of a kind of create creative practice that looks at making art differently we know that participating in such activities will enrich our creative mm. practice so when there were these agrarian reform mm. beneficiaries in Hacienda Tinang which is um, in a town in Concepcion Tarla who wanted to conduct a collective land cultivation activity as a means to install themselves in land they actually mm. own um, we decided to participate and observe um, as PESA, as our as as part of our role as PESA mm. act, uh, advocates and activists when we came there they were already start we had a small program they were already we were preparing to um, cultivate the land um, we were also given a situationer by the local mm-hmm. farmers. So this are a group of agrarian reform beneficiaries who just recently learned that the land they used to rent was actually mm. theirs. They have been renting it from a landlord um, for many, many years, for mm. decades, until in 2018, they discovered that they were the real owners <gasps> of the land. And it was given to them by the government. So they went to the office and they got their collective um, 
we call it a collective certificate of land mm-hmm. ownership. And so they were ad- they were asking the Department of Agrarian Reform to install them in the land because at that point all they had was yeah. paper. They just had a certificate that they were landowners, but they weren't mm. in the land. Um, and they were asking, can you please install us? We are hungry. We are already suffering from the pandemic. We have we are deep in debt. And we, if we can just plant our yeah. food, then at least we won't be in such big debt. Um, but they were not mm. listening. And so these farmers decided, this is our land. We own it anyway. Yeah. So we're going to mm. till it. When we started tilling it, um, eventually the landowners saw that we were tilling it and called the police. It so happened that the landowner is the newly elected mayor of the town. And so he instructed the police officers after much negotiations that did go to his favor. But we said that, okay, we will stop tilling the land just so that there will be no violence or anything. But the mayor was not happy about that. He he literally, as in because there's a live, there were media people who was able to document the whole four hours of this brutal attitude of the police and the violent dispersal of more than 100 people. Uh, the, the mayor really said, arrest them all. Wow. Without any basis for arrest. And the police some in plain clothes man in plain clothes. Actually the police chief was in just a shirt mm. and a baseball cap. Started arresting us without asking who we were, why we were there. They were just all accusing us as being NPAs, new people, us new people's army, yeah. like rebels mm-hmm. and communists, that's why we were there and therefore we were terrorists and making um, disturbing the people mm. in the town. And they just started picking up everybody. Wow. As in literally picking up. At first, we were able to push them away. Mm. So there was a bit of respite. We were inside the hut, but they were surrounding. There were more than 20 armed policemen wow. surrounding the hut. Mm. And we tried to negotiate. When they came back in, they forcibly opened the hut and dragged everyone they could drag and brought them to the police station and all charged us with malicious mischief and obstruction of justice (laughs) even though the mayor is it's not his land it's yes 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 so it's funny so we were detained for four days Mm. on this on the third on the third day um more than half of us were put in a cramped jail, in a cramped jail cell, mm-hmm. um, with uh, disregard for COVID regulations, regulations yeah. and infection prevention control protocols. Mm-hmm. And because the the jail cells were very small, um, like the men, there were sixty men mm-hmm. in a jail cell that was only good for fifteen people. Oh my gosh! Um, so. We were sleep deprived. Mm. It, it was it was torture. Mm. It, it was really torture. When we were illegally arrested, me and my partner were together with our eleven year old son, oh um, who experienced 
police brutality yes. to his face mm-hmm. while being told by the police that look at what you did you brought her children here and now they're scared of the police and they think they're that we are the enemies of the people <laughs> what the hell <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, it was really it was really an emotional and mental um torture. Mm. So eventually we were released. Um we were able to raise bail mm-hmm. for one day um through the donations of, of the public. Um wow. all the artists put up t shirts, everything in, in twenty-four hours we were able to raise a million pepers of bail. Wow. In twenty-four hours. Okay. As in it it broke social media yeah. at least here for one day. It was unbelievable for the police mm. that we were able to post bail. So we, we were got to we got to go out. We were released on bail. We had an arraignment. Mm. The cases of malicious mischief, illegal assembly, and obstruction of justice they were all dismissed okay. um, by the court. So which was good. Mm. But on that same day of our arraignment, we were slapped with um, three more new cases. Mm. <laughs> of um, usurpation of property, real rights, disobedience to authority, oh and I forgot the other one. Um, three days after, ten of us received an additional charge mm. for child exploitation. <gasps> oh my gosh! Okay. And two days after, five of us received another charge for human trafficking, oh my including myself. For human trafficking. So. Mm-hmm. So I still have five cases yeah. filed against me. Now the prosecutor referred it back to the Department of Agrarian Reform, mm. um, recognizing that it was the all these arrests are a result of a land dispute. Mm-hmm. But if and they are still um there's no resolution on that yet. Mm-hmm. If the Department of Agrarian Reform upholds that decision, then these cases will most likely be um dismissed. Okay. But if not then it will go to court mm. and because human trafficking is unbailable i will uh, a warrant of arrest for us will be down and that that's a typical strategy yeah. that is used to silence um political um, personality yeah. um, here so i'm so sorry that you've going through all of this just to finish, how can listeners support your cause and support all of you in the group who've been arrested? Um, at the moment, we have put out this petition on change.org mm-hmm. um, to continue to support the campaign to um, drop the charges against Kingang 83. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there are also interested um, artist organizations who would like to, and cultural organizations who would like to issue statements of solidarity for the artists and writers who have been um, arrested and whose rights for um, freedom for artistic expression mm-hmm. were violated, um, we would welcome such um, statements of solidarity. The statements of solid, and if you want to go further and write our Philippine government, yeah. Our Commission on Human Rights um, to uphold the rights for freedom of association, freedom of expression, and freedom of artistic expression. Um, these are most welcome. Mm-hmm. But simply also, um, there are lots of reports every day on human rights violations that we're only able to put out on Facebook because we don't have 
um, the media footprint in mainstream media mm-hmm. to just follow pages like Kilusang Magbubukid ng Pilipinas or Karapatan and share the human rights violations that happen on a daily basis yes. in the Philippines um, would be a really big help to bring it into the international We'd like to thank Donna for joining us for this week's episode. If you'd like to support Donna, please find links to her petition in the description of this episode. And thank you for listening to another season of the Arpsis podcast. We'll be back soon with season four, but for now, please rate it, follow us and share it online. Only with your help can these really important stories be heard.